Welcome to Weight Loss And, where we delve into the world of weight loss. I'm Jim Hill. And I'm Holly Wyatt. We're both dedicated to helping you lose weight, keep it off, and living your best life while you're doing it. Indeed, we now realize successful weight loss combines the science and art of medicine, knowing what to do and why you will do it. Yes, the and allows us to talk about all the other stuff that makes your journey so much bigger, better, and exciting. Ready for the and factor? Let's dive in. Here we go. Well, welcome to uh, this edition of Weight Loss And. Holly, I'm excited about today's um, episode for two reasons. One is the, the topic is one that everybody is interested in, intermittent fasting. And the second reason I'm excited is we actually have our first guest. You know, know. people get tired of just listening to you and I talk. <laughs> Definitely. One of the things we have is access to really smart people. And before I introduce our guest, one of the grants, the uh, grants from the National Institutes of Health that we have here at UAB is called the Nutrition Obesity Research Center, or the NORC. And we get funding to support nutrition research of all our investigators. And we have over 100 researchers here at UAB that are part of the NORC. There are 11 of these nationwide, and they really help really grow and develop nutrition research. And uh, Dr. Peterson, who is our guest today, is a member of our NORC. She's also our colleague here in the Department of Nutrition Sciences at UAB. Courtney is a, an associate professor here. She is absolutely one of the top people in this field. She has a lot of funding from the National Institutes of Health. She is at the cutting edge Courtney combines chronobiology, nutrition, and metabolism. I'm really excited to hear how all that is going to come together. She's doing a huge trial right now on intermittent fasting, and Courtney is literally one of the smartest people I know. And it's a real pleasure, Courtney, to have you on our podcast today. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, I, you stole it. That's what I was going to say. She's one of the smartest people I know. And I am so excited that we get to have her as our first guest. I mean, this is like one of those people that nationally people are asking to come on and talk. And so yeah, she's in the news all the time yeah. talking about her research. And we rub elbows with her. We can we can get her right. We so, know her. We can get her autograph for you. We know her. We know her. So, Courtney, this is just we want to just pick your brain. We want to know what you know about this subject. We're seeing, you know, I think, you know, lots of uh, um articles in the popular press about intermittent fasting, or some people call it timed eating or time-restricted feeding. There's lots of different terms. Maybe you can even help us with that. So we just want you on here to kind of clarify what that is and what you know and kind of tell us all the cutting edge. And we always end with like practical tips because that's what people want. So we are just really, really open and really glad to uh, have you here. So share with us. When people talk about intermittent fasting, to me, that's a catch-all. And there are several components of that. Maybe start there, and then we'll get into your own research. Great. So intermittent fasting is a term that encompasses many types of meal timing strategies. And the common theme behind all these strategies is that you're alternating periods of eating and extended fasting. Now, historically, we used to define intermittent fasting as fasting on water only or no calorie uh, beverages 
for at least 24 hours or longer. But recently, we've seen a big shift in the definition. And now most people define it as fasting for at least about 14 hours a day or longer. You'll still see some people defining it as fasting for at least 12 hours a day or longer. Uh, but I'm part of an international consensus committee uh, of experts, 35 intermittent fasting experts around the world. And we've agreed on a 14 hour or longer definition. Wow. Yeah, I love that. That's great to get that many scientists agree on anything, Courtney. That's awesome. Well, right. we didn't all agree. This was just the final voted option. <laughs> well, in State of Slim, we adopted that. I went and talked to Courtney and she said, and I was like, okay, I, I'm out there. There's all these different hours and I don't, and she says, okay, this is what we think. We may learn something different, but this is what we think. So we went with 14 hours. So I, I like it. We're, we're, we're there with you on that. That's great. So under this umbrella, there are actually a ton of different eating strategies that are technically intermittent fasting. And most people think of only a couple different intermittent fasting strategies. So I'd love to define the landscape. So intermittent fasting largely arose from different religious traditions around the world. So you can think of Ramadan fasting, actually the most common form of intermittent fasting in the world. And that's where you uh, dry fast during the daytime. Um, dry fasting means not only do you do classic water uh, classic fasting where you eat no calories, but you actually drink no liquids too. And you do this for a month during the month of, of Ramadan. So a lot of these fasting traditions came from uh, different religious traditions. Uh, another example would be fasting one day a week for 24 hours or 36 hours, depending on how you define that. Uh, more recently, we've seen other intermittent fasting approaches where, for instance, every other day you'll have a complete fast that's known as alternate day fasting or every other day you might eat one meal a day. That would be called uh, alternate day modified fasting because you're not having a complete 24-hour fast, but you're still eating a very low calorie diet on those days. Another example would be the fasting mimicking diet. So this is an approach where you're trying to actually recapitulate a lot of the benefits of extended water-only fasting. And in this type of approach, you'll typically take three to five days in a row and you'll eat the equivalent of about 800 calories in a row. And what they find is this type of approach kind of recapitulates or reproduces a lot of the benefits of intermittent fasting. You see an increase in stem cell production after about five, uh, three to five days, and you see a lot of these benefits of intermittent fasting. And more recently, um, the most popular form of intermittent fasting by far is daily intermittent fasting. And that's when you fast for at least 14 hours a day, every day. So that means you're effectively extending your nightly fast between dinner one day and breakfast the next day. And you can do that either by eating breakfast later in the day and or dinner earlier in the day. So there, there are a bunch of different ways to do that. So that is now the most popular way to do intermittent fasting. And I'll add one more uh, intermittent fasting strategy that's become quite popular, especially in Europe, and that's the 5-2 diet. This was very uh, popularized after a uh, BBC reporter did a documentary on fasting um, for the BBC. And in this type of approach, you pick two days a week to eat a very low calorie diet. So typically the equivalent of about one meal a day. So Courtney, what, what do we think are the benefits of these sorts of uh, different meal patternings? So a lot of the basis of intermittent fasting comes from this idea that our, that our hunter-gatherer ancestors didn't have access to food all the time. And so they had these periods of extended fasting. And what we know is when you're fasting, so if you think about the fasting state, if you eat a meal, you know, the first, when you're first digesting that meal, you're burning mostly those carbs, fat, and protein that are in that meal. And as time elapses that you've been fasting, then your body will start to burn through most of that fuel and it start burning through glycogen that you have stored in your body. So this is a form of kind of stored sugar that you have in your body. 
And as you kind of deplete these glycogen reserves, then your body starts transitioning to burning more fat. Um, so it's burning fat for fuel. And what we know is when your body starts burn fat for fuel, it turns on a lot of sort of reparative and rejuvenative processes in the body. So for instance, we really start to see after about 11 to 13 hours of fasting, we really start to see a big increase in something called autophagy. And autophagy is just a fancy word for recycling a lot of damaged and worn out proteins in the body. And so we really see that the body kind of repairs a lot of the damage that happens uh, on a daily basis. And the punchline is we know, you know, some of this molecular damage can raise our blood sugar levels, can cause inflammation in the body. And so we think by having these extended fasting periods that the body turns on a lot of this sort of like self-recycling and self-rejuvenative processes and makes us healthier in the long term. We also know with the extended fat burning uh, period that insulin, which is a blood sugar hormone in the body, those levels go really low or insulin levels go really low. And so a lot of other really positive sort of programs are turned on in the body. So for instance, we know when insulin levels are low, that actually inhibits the growth of cancer cells. So it gives your body the signal to um, kill a lot of these sort of precancerous cells in the body. And it does that by lowering a certain uh, molecule called IGF-1, which is a, a big cancer-related molecule. And then we also see interesting things like with longer fasting periods, your body actually gets rid of extra sodium that you eat through your diet, and that in turn lowers blood pressure. Um, we also see other uh, evidence, um, for instance, in the brain, your brain starts producing a hormone called BDNF, which protects a lot of the neurons in your brain and regenerates a lot of neurons. So across the board, just imagine this is there's this incredible orchestra of different things that your body's doing to help repair and maintain health when you have those longer fasting periods. That makes sense. I mean, if you think about it, because we've now moved into an environment, if we're not doing this practice of intermittent fasting, if we're not, you know, consciously going in, our environment is such that we now have food available all the time and we tend to be eating and now we don't naturally get a period without it. But if maybe our body was meant to have this period where insulin is low to allow it to repair itself and to rejuvenate like you're talking about. So it kind of makes sense. So I love how you explained it. It's really exciting, Courtney. But one of the questions I know a lot of our listeners are asking is, what about weight? If you're trying to lose weight, is this a good way to think about losing weight? Yeah, great question. So this area becomes a little bit more controversial, uh, but I, I'll, I'll happily share some encouraging answers as well. So when you have this extended fasting period, we know that with about you know 48 hours of fasting, the body sort of enters this optimal fat burning mode, which suggests with intermittent fasting that we might actually see greater fat loss. And it could be that there's something intrinsic that you're just burning more fat, for instance, and preserving more muscle mass, but there could be other factors involved. And this is where the debate comes in. So if you have this rule not to eat at certain times of the day, that prevents people from snacking. And a lot of people do um, snacking or there are a lot of temptations to snack or eat either mindlessly or not mindlessly. Um, so you can imagine someone sitting in front of the TV at night, just grabbing a snack and kind of, you know, reflectively doing that. So one of the, the key thoughts is maybe this intermittent fasting works because it makes us more mindful, but in a positive right, way, right? It's a really simple rule. And I'll tell you, because we do also some research on diet quality in my lab, it's far easier to give someone a rule like don't eat at this time than say, 
you know, teach them, okay, broccoli's healthy, you know, refined food is not. So it's it's a it's a really appealing rule that a lot of people like. Now, when we look at all the studies that have been done so far, um, there have been over 50 studies on daily intermittent fasting and weight loss. And then we call this daily intermittent fasting time-restricted eating. Little bit of an unfortunate name, but we're stuck with it. So time-restricted eating or TRE. But this in this daily intermittent fasting, we have over 50 studies now. And the exciting thing is about over about three quarters of those studies do find that people lose weight with intermittent fasting. And um, we recently, my lab recently did a systematic review and it's really quite interesting. So we find that when people limit their daily intake to about eight hours or less during the day, whether they're eating one meal a day, you know, say within a four hour period, whether they're eating some number of meals within a six hour period, or if they're eating within an eight hour period, almost universally, all those studies find some sort of weight loss benefit, either relative to where people started at the beginning of the study. So we would say relative to baseline. So um, there wasn't necessarily a control group, or even if there was a control control group, as long as the control group was given, you know, you know, keep maintaining your normal habits, uh, et cetera. Um, and so I think that's really exciting and encouraging. But once you get to 10 hours a day. How much weight loss? That's what we we want to know. The amount of weight loss is typically about 2 to 3% over about 8 to 10 weeks. And we did a study recently and we found very similar results. And what we did, we took that data and we used some mathematical models and we kind of said, okay, what sort of calorie cut is this weight loss equivalent to? You know, it's most important to know. And when we modeled the data is equivalent to about a 214 calorie per day deficit. So this is about modest to moderate. That's very cool. Uh, you get a little bit of an effect, but it's something that for a lot of people is fairly easy to do. Or something you might can add on, you know, add on to something you're already doing. You're making some better choices and now you're going to restrict the time that you eat and that's going to help with weight loss and then potentially all the other stuff you've said, right? Yes. And Courtney, we talk a lot about weight loss, but we also talk about weight loss maintenance. Could this be a, a good strategy for people that have actually lost weight? We did, uh, for example, a, a show the other day about the new weight loss medications that are good at producing weight loss, but the challenge becomes key keeping it off. So could could these strategies be uh, used for weight loss maintenance? Yes, we think absolutely they will be very helpful because one, you have this kind of nice rule to follow, which kind of keeps you on track. And we know a lot of weight gain, for instance, happens around the holidays. And I'm not saying you have to follow intermittent fasting perfectly around the holidays, but you know, maybe you go off the diet for a couple of days and then go back on and, you know, kind of blunts that, that gate or reduces that weight gain every year. The other thing that's super interesting is we, we've done studies in my lab where we put continuous glucose monitors on people. So these are blood sugar monitors that tell us what your blood sugar level is at, at different times of the day. And what we found is intermittent fasting really kind of reduces these spikes in blood sugar that people get. And what we know is when people have these really rapid spikes and these really rapid falls in their blood sugar, that can, can trigger this response in the body of being really hungry. Um, and there's a bunch of molecular reasons why that's the case, which I'll skip over. But um, we find those spikes are lessened with intermittent fasting, even when we feed people the exact same food. And so we may actually be naturally reducing that hunger. Uh, in folks, as well as the, giving them just general strategies. To. So that leads into a question I've been wanting to ask you, how does chronobiology fit into all of this? Yes, absolutely. Um, so one of the biggest debates out there right now is whether the time of day that you practice intermittent fasting matters. And most people who practice intermittent fasting do so by skipping breakfast and then eating later in the day. 
And you've probably heard over the years, oh, you should eat breakfast. That's good for your health. And the data seems so controversial. It's so hard to make good sense of it. And what I can say is we actually, I want to take a little bit of an aside and talk a little bit about the internal biological clock or circadian system. So um, inside our body, so we have this biological clock, we call it the circadian system, and it's better at doing certain things at different times of the day. So for instance, when it's dark outside, and I'm going to say something that sounds really obvious, uh, that's the best time of day to sleep. You know, that's where you get the most regeneration from sleep. You burn the most calories when you sleep actually at night. So some people don't know this, but you actually burn more calories when you sleep at night than during the daytime. So there are all kinds of reasons why your body's optimized to do different things at different times of the day. So for instance, your best sports performance is in the afternoon. Now, in most people, though there are some exceptions, their best blood sugar control is actually in the morning. It's the mid to late morning. And it's really interesting because we've actually known this for about 50 years, but we originally didn't know what to do with this observation. So when we were developing our first blood sugar tests to diagnose type 2 diabetes, they're trying to understand these blood sugar tests. And they notice, huh, if we give this test in the morning, people's blood sugar doesn't spike as high. And back then, we didn't know about the existence of the circadian system. And if you fast forward a few decades, we learned, okay, so we have this circadian system and this system is making our blood sugar control better early in the day. And so this does suggest that people should eat early in the day. And we have a lot of studies now showing that if people follow the old adage of eating breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and dinner like a pauper, they actually lose more weight, they have better blood sugar control, etc. So there is very clear evidence now that eating earlier in the day is better for health. And I can't do it fully justice here, but that gives you a flavor of the research we have. Wow. But with intermittent fasting where you skip breakfast, okay, maybe you're missing some of the benefits of eating breakfast or eating earlier in the day. However, you may still be getting some benefits from the intermittent fasting. How do those two factors play out against each other? It's complex. So no, it's complex, I think, is the answer. What excites you about your science right now? Well, so I'll, I'll finish that with along th these lines. So we're actually doing a study right now to see if you can get most of the same benefits of intermittent fasting by skipping breakfast. So we have a pretty cool study now where we have, we're taking people and they get assigned to one of three groups. So one group's a control group. They eat their meals over 12 hours. The second group does daily intermittent fasting or this time-restricted eating by eating in a seven-hour period early in the day. And then the third group eats in the same seven-hour period, but they do it by eating late in the day, so they skip breakfast. So to me, this is the million-dollar question. Wow. That's a great one. I'm I'm very excited about those results. Well, I love it because it just it shows like we think we know something and we have data to support it. And then there's something that kind of comes in and goes, well, wait a minute, we need to question that. And then we study it again and then it just evolves. And that it's it's always this, you know, we we call this weight loss and because there's so much more to it and it's never ending, right? It just dot 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 continues. So that's really, I think the that, you know, I always say scientists who come in and say, this is absolute, nothing's absolute, I think. We're always, you know. Yes, absolutely. So for this particular study, I mean, so my best guess is the group that does intermittent fasting early in the day will get the most benefits. But if we find that skipping breakfast and doing intermittent fasting is better than eating three square meals a day, you know, spread throughout the day, I think that would be such a huge positive finding. Yeah. So many people would be willing to do that. But but Courtney, do you think it's possible that not one size fits all? Some people may be better with one strategy and others with other strategies. Yes. And we actually saw this in one of the first studies we did. We did a study where we had people uh, do intermittent fasting early in the day. And this was a small study. 
Um, and seven out of people, eight people clearly did better eating early in the day, but one person got worse and very clearly worse. And it was interesting because we found out later he um, did night shifts. Mm. Uh, ah. a night shift worker, right? And we made, his, we made his blood sugar worse. And so he clearly needs a different time of day to eat. And one of the big questions in, in the field too is, in people who have type 2 diabetes, their circadian rhythms are different. Their biological rhythms are different. So do they need to eat at a different time of day or do we need to improve their underlying rhythm? And that's something else that we're actually studying in my lab too. We're measuring their circadian rhythms before and after they eat early in the day and trying to see, you know, are we making their health better, worse? Does it depend on the person? Does it depend on their underlying circadian rhythms? So we're also measuring their circadian rhythms. We're going to do a later episode on what we're calling precision nutrition, where we'll talk a little bit more about how we learn uh, why people are different and what to do with that. But we're just at the beginning of doing that. This is such an exciting research area, Courtney. So I want to ask some practical questions because I know that some listeners are going, okay, I love it. I'm I'm bought in. I, I like it. I want to try it. What do I do? So first off, it sounds like 14 hours is kind of where you're sitting right now in terms of the time to do the fasting. Is that right? Yes. I think people will get better results if they fast for at least 16 hours. But where I recommend as a starting point for most people is try to fast for 14 to 16 hours and then take it from there. Okay. I think that's a really great starting target for most people. Okay. So that's good. What about, can you eat anything? Like people always ask me like, what if it's like a splash of reduced, you know, fat milk in my black coffee? Can you eat anything or is there any leeway or what, what do you think about that? Not really, to be honest. It probably breaks the fast, but it probably depends on what exactly you're doing. Like, right. If you squeeze a little bit of lemon, that's going to be less than five calories in water. No problem. Have fun. But if you start to eat something, you know, like uh, an energy bar that has 100 calories or more, you're, you're probably breaking your fast. And it's a slippery slope. You start with a little bit and you do a little bit. So maybe the best answer is be pretty rigid. No calories. Yes. And I will say the other thing that we found in our studies is there's a clear adaptation period, which means if you suddenly jump on the bandwagon, we found that participants sometimes find it harder until their body adapts. And many people start to see some that their their body starts to adapt after about two to three weeks. Oh, two to three weeks. That's good to know. Yeah. And it actually makes sense because they've been this great, these great studies on Ramadan fasting and they find after about a month, then people's, some of their hormones that regulate appetite start shifting and adjusting to the new time of day that they're eating. So we're thinking at this point that you have to kind of retrain your body to eat at a different time of day, and then it becomes easier. Give it a while before you really evaluate whether it's actually good for you. That's important. I didn't know that. And I think that is a really big message to get out there because I think people are willing to, if they know things may get better after three weeks, they're willing to try it. And I've definitely had some of my patients on it saying it's really, really, really hard and I don't feel any different or whatever, but maybe we did, they didn't try long enough. So I like, that's a really good tip. And biggest mistake you see, like any kind of mistake that you've noticed or from your experiences with it, seeing other people do it? Oh, that is a hard question. So I guess um, a couple of things that come to mind is I generally recommend that people have a break day each week. And we do that in most of our studies. Um, and the reason why is I think people tend to take an all or nothing approach. And so in nearly all, we have one exception lab, but in nearly every study in the lab, we tell people to stick with it six days a week. 
Oh, really? That's new information. That fits because we do like an indulgence meal. So it's almost like you can do an indulgence meal, but you can have like a, a day where you, you, and that didn't seem to affect the results. It, it seems like you can get right back on and things are good. Uh, yeah. And I think the biggest thing is sustainability, right? If you tell someone they can never eat out, who's going to stick with that program in the long term, right? But if you give them one day a week, like the pressure's off and they're like, I can do this, right? I love it. It's practical. You've got to have a diet which works and one that people can stick with. If you can't stick with it, it doesn't matter. This is great information, Courtney. So, so another question, Courtney, do you do intermittent fasting? What do you do? Yes. Yeah. So I've been doing intermittent fasting for about 10 years um, before it became popular. Wow. You were ahead of the curve. I know. And I, I didn't, you know, and I actually started doing intermittent fasting before I was researching it. But I heard this podcast, I guess back in 2008, where they were talking about a study by Mark Matson where they had people eat in a four hour period and fast the rest of the day. And at the time I was like, wow, well, that's very different. And I was intrigued and I tried it out um, and and just thought this is fantastic. And I'd also been thinking in parallel that how powerful fasting is, but fasting for an extended period of time, like a week is extremely difficult and there can be safety issues too. And so I kept thinking like, how do you get the most out of fasting, but in a sustainable way that someone would actually be willing to do for a lifetime, right? Because fasting for 24 hours, one day a week, it's a big burden. You want that eating pattern that you can do forever. Correct. Well, I just think you brought up a really good a good point. If someone's listening and they're diet too diabetic on an insulin, they need to talk to their doctor before they jump in and do this. I just want to make sure that people know that if you're on some medication, especially that controls your blood glucose, you need to adjust it. It doesn't mean you can't do it, but you got to talk to your doctor first. Correct. So we are studying the daily intermittent fasting in my lab, that time-restricted eating. We haven't seen an, in a major increase in side effects, but most other forms of intermittent fasting, you have to be really careful about medication and adjustments, especially if you're on any glucose-lowering medication. So please do talk to your doctor because there are recommendations, you know, cut your medication in half or by 70%, depending on the type. Of yeah, you can do it. You just need to talk to your doctor first. All right, Jim, do you do intermittent fasting? Any, have you practiced this at all? I, I do because of Courtney, when she told us the, uh, you know, the 14 hour thing, I've been doing it now for a few months and, and I do it. I start eating. I'm about ready to go eat right now. I start eating about 10 o'clock. Uh, and so I, I skip breakfast. And that's why I'm very interested in your study, because I actually believe breakfast might have some positive effects. So that's going to be a great study. So yes, I've been doing the time-restricted feeding. I haven't been taking a day off. And this is, you, you've, you've made my day, Courtney. I'm going to start <laughs> doing that. What about you, Holly? I do it, but I have to admit I'm kind of episodic about it. I'm probably doesn't sound like I'm as consistent. What I've found personally, it works really well when I start to feel like cravings or start getting really hungry or I notice for whatever reason, and this is just anecdotal. This isn't a study. This is this is the 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 Dr. Holly study uh, of one person. But when I feel like I'm starting to crave food a lot and I, I you know, I'm having to push back against cravings or um think about food a lot. You know, we call it mind chatter or mind, you know, I'm thinking about food, 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 food. Sometimes then the two really make sure I go into that intermittent fasting can kind of decrease that or stop that. And I wonder if it's not breaking some of the patterns of insulin or some, just some of the things that you've been talking about. So I tend to use it a little episodically, but hey, 2024, I may 
may change my mind. I may really start to use this. And, and let me say one other thing. I think if someone listens to this podcast and they can only do it five days a week, that's fantastic. In a lot of our studies, we find the vast majority of people can do it five, five and a half, or six days a week, like about 80% of people doing that. So I don't want anyone to say, oh, I can't do it six days a week, beat themselves up and fail. I would say if you can do it five days a week, awesome. Wow, Courtney, this is wonderful information. And and I think you've given our listeners some ideas of maybe to try some things. And uh, the the research here is just fantastic. And uh, we're going to have to have you back on when your study results come out and uh, as as we learn more. But thank you. Thank you so much for being the first guest on Weight Loss And. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. Bye, everybody. And that's a wrap for today's episode of Weight Loss And. We hope you enjoy diving into the world of weight loss with us. If you want to stay connected and continue exploring the ands of weight loss, be sure to follow our podcast on your favorite platform. We'd also love to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, or topic suggestions by reaching out at weightlossand.com. Your feedback helps us tailor future episodes to your needs. And remember, the journey doesn't end here. Keep applying the knowledge and strategies you've learned and embrace the power of the and in your own weight loss journey.